0: Slow down, you move too fast, you got to make the morning last. Just kicking down the cobblestones, looking for fun and feeling groovy. On a delicious date, on a delicious fate, you, I mean, you, you are the delicious fate. And other ways we think in March madness going out and going on with lions, poetry for a wild march, hares and coots, marmalade man, and plenty of leaping. This has been a wild week, pie day, Einstein's birthday, Ides of March, Saint Patrick's Day, Duck Seated Number One, all having to do with poetry, Natch, and in memory of John Updike, born this weekend over 84 years ago. Speaking of hares, rabbits, still alive for us as a writer. And he, of course, was writing about March Madness. We like March. His shoes are purple. So says Emily Dickinson. And dear March Come in. She's the welcoming host to this panting month of roars. March comes in like a lion, say we people. And she said, a little madness in the spring is wholesome even for the king. But God be with the clown who ponders this tremendous scene this whole experiment in green as if it were his own. Emily Dickinson on March Madness. And so say I, this wind-blown mid-March known to us in these days as March Madness, I'm your welcoming host, Professor Barbara Mossberg. Midway in March as we Slow down, march it slow, march it wide and deep with our purple Versace shoes. And we'll get back to whatever Emily Dickinson meant by that in the spirit of RadioMonterey.com on California's Central Coast, produced by Zappa Johns, who also does our podcast. You can get at any time at BarbaraMossberg.com. Thank you. And to low our poetry slow down community. We have safely skirted Ides of March, March 15th, a day we remember because of Shakespeare, the bard, and his play, Julius Caesar. He gives the immortal lines to the role of the poet, the soothsayer, the seer ancient role whose words mean sayer of the truth, the one who sees, sees the future, the wise. As I said, the poet. And who listens to the poet? A. Eh? Emerson, in his essay, the poet, said, you will be unknown. You will be known as a fool or a churl. And as William Carlos Williams said, and you are quoting this right now to yourself, my heart rouses to bring you news that concerns you and concerns many men. It is difficult to get the news from despised poems, yet men die miserably every day for lack of what is found there. And so, the poet tries to save Caesar's life by giving some advice, some news. Beware the Ides of March. The Ides of March meaning March 15th by the Roman calendar, Ides being the middle of the month. Oh, you don't even want to know how complicated and impossible the ancient calendar was. I don't know how anything got done. I refer you back to our radio show on the calendar. But any who's else, it was a mess. Nevertheless, Caesar knew when the Ides of March were. And he was told, beware the Ides of March. But you couldn't tell him anything. He knew better. And so Shakespeare's play has him in 44 B.C., on his way to the Senate. And snarky. Passing the poet. And jeering. Ah yeah. The eyes of March have come. But the poet says. "I, But not yet. Gone. And the rest as they say. Is history. He sashays off. Shows up for work. And is stabbed 23 times. Now. In his defense, what would you do if someone shouts at you, beware the Ides of March when you're getting into your car, balancing your pizza or Starbucks or green tea in a mug? All righty then. When someone says, beware the Ides of March, what are you supposed to do with that? Beware isn't even a verb. It's a command like behold or look out or slow down. But unlike other command words, you don't go about bewaring, I beware, you beware, he, she, yet bewares. No. All it does is piss you off, annoy you. All it does is make you mad because what are you supposed to do with this? Go about being wary of harm? That is too vague to be helpful, frankly. And all it does is make him feisty and defiant. And he's already feisty and defiant. This is Julius Caesar. How do you heed advice from a poet? He's not going to stay in bed all day. And besides, maybe if he did, the roof will cave in, as I used to hope would happen in graduate school when I had a paper due, and imagined various kinds of deus ex machina, malaria, tornado, and if that is his fate, what is he going to do? Do we learn our fates and leap to? So, I was thinking about what William Carlos Williams calls news that concerns us. My heart rouses to tell you news. He wants to tell us, as a poet, life and death news, fate, and how we learn our fates, And what we then do, not only because of Caesar's fate on the Ides of March, but because other things have called it to my attention this March month. And so our show today, on all things March, taking the expressions, March comes in like a lion, March madness, March hair. And I'll begin with what I wrote in my journal As my husband is watching the Nature Channel, Nature's News, I won't lie to you. There was a lot of noisy news of carnage and the equivalent of 23 stabbings. And I was thinking of Nature's News and Emily Dickinson's lines came to me. This is my letter to the world that never wrote to me. The simple news that nature told With tender majesty. Well, um, the simple news that nature told was not tender. One third of all wild beasts end up in the jaws of the lion. So my journal became this reflection. Okay, so I have to pause here a minute, slow down a minute, and ask you, poetry, slow down. What do we do with this news? Is this a beware the Ides of March for the wild beast crowd? What if Caesar heard some statistical analysis? 100% of Caesars will end up stabbed on the Ides of March, but more like one out of three empire rulers will end up stabbed. Does he do a risk analysis? But of course, as soon as they say this, one third of all wild beasts end up in the jaws of the lion, the old mind pounces, goes to work with imagery prey, hears this, and makes a mental image. And the next thing you know, you're in the jaws of the beast yourself. Your mind is taking this image and running with it. This lion's fangs are sticking in your ear. So I sat down and I reflected on this and wrote, my husband watches the nature channel and calls out nature's news. And here's how it goes. One third of all wild beasts end up in the jaws of the lion. So if you were the wild beast, how would you go about your days in the grass? Would you lie low and weary, in fear at this fate, one out of three of us inside a blood-fanged mouth? Or would you say, hey, two out of three of us are going to end up lying by some river under some tree in the sun, caressed by wind sung to by loons, and leap and frolic and rush through grass and mud like nobody's business? Meanwhile, thinking on our mutual fates, driving through the lawns, the coots swarmed the green grass until it was black, black with coots. You old coot, my husband and I would chortle to one another as we passed, feeling so lucky to see creatures I did not know really existed, who knew a real coot was behind the genial You old coot! Then one day, the grass was green and blank. The next day, we read it in the papers how the golf club people went to the state and the commissioner, yes, the one just photographed with a cougar hanging in his arms when he had crossed state lines to shoot where it was legal, agreed that there were too many coots, and licensed a coot kill. But first, It was merely torture, trying to frighten them with barking dogs whereby 300 coots were shot. A week later, there were some coots who had returned and were there on the grass, and to me, it seemed complete now. They were like icing on the cake or bloom on the stem. Pigeons on the grass, alas, said Gertrude Stein. I believe she said this when Hemingway went with a bag to the park. He and Hadley were hungry then and snatched a pigeon into the bag for their supper. If you were a pig, I asked the man next to me in the car, and you knew you would be bacon, soon to be slaughtered for your hinds for back, what would you do if you knew being BLT was your fate? Pigs are smart, he said. How would you live, I asked him then. I would live in rage, he answered. I would snarl and pant and howl. So you would be a wild boar. Yes, I would never live in peace. You would rage, rage against the dying of the light, I say. Like Dylan Thomas. Yes, he says, You would not take it lying down, I said. No, he said. I once considered the fate of the coho salmon, how you live your life straining against the current with all your might, and you make it up the waterfall against all odds, hurl your body into the air, pelted by a curtain of water, pounded down, and yet you hurl yourself upwards again and again up the stream, and then you lay your eggs and you die. Oh, or end your caught and die from strangulation of oxygen and put into a freezer and plastic bag and then broiled and then eaten by me. And what I am thinking is how wonderful to end like this, nutritious, to end like this, delicious. Would it comfort me to know That I would have a useful fate. What if I knew? If I knew, my end is to be in the jaws of the bear, the lion, the tiger. What if I knew my end is to be eaten? What if I? If I knew my fate is to be shot for being a letter on the blank page, a coot on the grass. What if I knew that my days would end? What? What I do then You're the wild beast What do you know What do you say So I wrote this In mid-March And I don't like snakes One bit What do you know know? He swallowed my toe. Oh gee He's up to my knees Oh my. oh my He's up to my thigh, He's up to my thigh. Oh, yummy. oh yummy He's up to my tummy, He's up to my tummy. Oh, fiddle. oh fiddle So I did some later research on coots And I found this Since coots appear neither comical vulnerable nor inspirational. The public is often unsympathetic to their problems. American coot flocks may number up to 1,500 individuals, and the birds may readily attain pest status. In 1986, for example, employees at a California golf course shot 400 coots in an effort to keep them off the grass. Apparently, their droppings accumulated on the putting greens and resulted in raised golf scores and tempers. But when coots disappear, they usually toll the bell for other species as well. In Hawaii, for example, coot numbers were reduced to 1,500 by the mid-1970s. The island population was considered endangered. Their decline was an indicator of the disappearance of island wetlands, the habitat for many Hawaiian species. I also found info about you old coot coot, and I'm quoting a blog site, Landfill Bird Blog. It's an expression used to describe, it says about coots, a cranky, surly, or pesky old person. Coots got implicated in this negative expression because they're just so dang common and numerous. Duck hunters, consider them pests and a distraction because of their commonness. Well, there used to be passenger pigeons so numerous they would fill the sky and fly by for hours and days at a time, and now there are none actually, and maybe if there were poems about coots, you see where I'm going with this poetry slowdown, that would make us see coots in a way that we empathize with them and value them. This was John Muir's strategy about wilderness, and he borrowed from Wordsworth, for example, the way Wordsworth as a poet took images from his sister's Dorothy's journals and said, My heart leaps up when I behold a rainbow in the sky. Hearts leaping up is a mental model of how we could respond. We needed John Muir to write about coots that would inspire a public response. Don't shoot the coot. Well, I did find this one poem from a naturalist blog site, Bold Birds by Mike. It's hardly a secret that we love coots around here, the birds, not Sunil old men. We love them in their magnificent diversity from their black, beck-knobbed heads to their fantastic fissa palmate feet. Our affection for them is so deep that we can get lost for hours in the tiny little details that separate black coots from American coots, so it should come as no surprise that I couldn't resist sharing a coot poem I just discovered. It's called Coot by Mary Howitt, 1799 to 1888. So, basically the 19th century the coot. O coot, O bold, adventurous coot, I pray thee tell to me the perils of that stormy lime that bore thee to the sea. I saw thee on the river pure, within thy sedgy screen around thee grew the bulrash tail and reed so strong and green. The Kingfisher came back again to view thy fairy peace. The stately swan sailed statelier by as if thy home to grace. Cut soon the mountain fled came down and bowed the bulrush strong. And far above those tall green reeds the waters poured along. And where is the, the water coot? I cried, that creature good. But then I saw thee in thine ark regardless of the flood, amid the foaming wave thou sayest and steerest thy little boat, thy nest of rush and water reed so bravely set afloat, and on it went, and safely on that wild and stormy tide, and there thou sayest a mother bird, thy young ones at thy bide, O coot, O bold, adventurous coot, I pray thee, tell to me, the perils of that stormy voyage that bore thee To the sea, hadst thou no fear as night came down upon thy watery way of enemies and dangers dire that round about thee lay? Yes, thou hadst fear. But he who sees the sparrows when they fall, he saw thee, bird, and gave thee strength to brave thy perils all. He kept thy little ark afloat. He watched over thine and thee, and safely through the foaming flood hath brought thee to the sea. And there are other poems about coots, in fact by very famous poets, in fact the most famous poet probably of them all, Alfred Lord Tennyson, The Brick. I come from haunts of coot and hern, I make a sudden sally, and sparkle out among the fern to picker down a valley, by thirty hills I hurry down, or slip between the ridges, by twenty thorps a little town, and half a hundred bridges, till last by Philip's farm I flow to join the brimming river, for men may come, and men may go, but I go on. Forever. And Tennyson goes on forever about the river and the coot. He's the longest serving poet laureate of England from 1850 to 1892. And so coots were something of a common knowledge. And I have found a website called Cantankerous Old Coots. Coots are modest human beings. We don't hold high regard for our intelligence or marketing skills. That appraisal is reinforced daily when we check for comments here at our blog or review the reader's stats. We're not about to produce literary genius here. There will be no coot sonnets pledging our unrequited love for all time. No epic poems glorifying coot's past are only softening in the realm of art. Just in sweet kettlebells playing from time to time. The web is a circus show full of smoke and mirrors, snake oil, and pretense. There's a sucker born every minute, and for what we see, they all have blogs. They bought the notion they probably learned in the public school system they have something to say. What that somebody cares? Well. The coot message for today. Shared modestly with our small select group of discriminating readers. Spread the word about coots. This is still Poetry Slowdown from the blog. Here you won't find snake oil or smoker mirrors. What you see is what you get. We don't pretend to know, but we've been around the block a few times and that's what we share. So... If you want straight talk and real opinion, you're in the right place. Sign up for our mailing list and you even get priceless lessons on how to develop your cootness. So we have blogs. We have personalities dealing with coots and poetry slow down back to fate. What if the coots knew they were seen as pests by golf course owners because that is where my husband and I saw them and were so charmed and then they were run out of town and shot and it all seems so mysterious to me the world manifesting what we talk about in language how language comes to our minds first and is what gives us our sense of the world so that when we encounter the world we recognize it recognize Recognize cognition to know and re to know again. Language gives us the original way of knowing, apprehension, knowledge. And then when the world as described appears before us, we recognize it. Aha! A coot. And it's exciting. Poetry's role the framework by which we see the world feel both safe and excited. And so, March, when the wind blows, we think March comes in like a lion, and we think of lions, and there have been lion sightings around these parts lately, literally lions. That knocks me out. Who was raised on Wizard of Oz? Lions and tigers and bears, Oh no. Do... do you suppose we'll meet any wild animals? Mm, we might. Animals that... that eat straw? Uh, some, but mostly lions and tigers and bears. Lions? And tigers? And bears. <gasps> Lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. 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 Lions and tigers and bears. bears bears So, not just March lionizing, but news. We are considering March. Well, it's lions and it's hares. And I know you love them, Poetry Slow Down. Every year we celebrate their leaping frolics. So we'll leap about with some leaping poetry. Speaking of, my heart leaps up when I behold. And perhaps leaping from the jaws of a lion, saving our lives and wet. That has to do with March Madness, wild weather, with loyal poetry. Slow down, listeners to RadioMonterey.com dot com, right here and now. Stay tuned. Now, a poem I wait all year to recite to you. How it goes: Wait, wait for it. Picture yourself. In a boat on a river with tangerine trees and marmalade skies. Somebody calls you, you answer quite slowly. A girl with kaleidoscope eyes. The man in the marmalade hat arrived in the middle of March. Equipped with a bucket and starch to straighten the bends in the road, he said. He carried a bucket and mop, a most incommodious load, he said. And he asked for a room at the top. Now beat the gong and the drums. Call out the keepers and waken the sleepers. The man in the marmalade hat has come. The man in the marmalade hat Bustled through all the rooms. Badgers and hedgehogs and moles come out from your hollows and holes. Winter is over, my loves, he said. Now beat the gong and the drum. Call out the keepers and waken the sleepers. The man in the marmalade hat has come. That's Nancy Willard's Man in the Marmalade Hat from a visit to William Blake's Inn, first given to us thirty-four years ago from Poetry Slowed Down Listeners, Texas poet, rancher, artist, Aggie and Arsue, whose spirit rides with us today, gallops, soars, and this is Professor Barbara Mossberg, in the middle of March, marching wide with the lion winds on com. Think for Yourself Radio, produced by Mr. Z, Zappa Johns, and we're slowing down this March with a breeze of poetry, inspired by how we know this month of March, for example, the March Hare. I don't mean wind-swept hare, I mean the actual, long-eared, adorable rabbit we know as Hare. Haya, the March Hare, is a character most famous for appearing in the tea party scene in Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventure in Wonderland. The main character, Alice, hypothesizes the March Hare will be much the most interesting and perhaps as this is May it won't be raving mad, at least not so mad as it was in March. Mad as the March Hare is a common British English phrase both now and in Lewis Carroll's time and appears in John Haywood's collection of Proverbs published in 1546. It appears is reported in the Annotated Alice by Martin Gardner. He says that this proverb is based on popular belief about hare's behavior at the beginning of the long breeding season, which lasts from February to September in Britain. Early in the season, unreceptive females, so-called, use their forelegs to repel over-enthusiastic males. It used to be incorrectly believed that these bouts were between males fighting for breeding supremacy. Like the character's friend, the hatter, the march hare feels compelled to always behave as though it is tea time. Because the hatter supposedly murdered the time while singing for the Queen of Hearts. Sir John Tenniel's illustration of Alice in Wonderland shows him with straw on his head. This is the March Hare, a common way to depict madness in Victorian times. The March Hare later appears at the trial in Alice in Wonderland for the Knave of Hearts, and for a final time as Hare, which Carroll tells us is pronounced to rhyme with Mayor, the personal messenger to the White King and through the looking glass. Here was a table set out under a tree in front of the house, and the March Hare and the Hatter were having tea at it. A dormouse sitting between them, fast asleep, and the other two are using it as a cushion, resting their elbows on on it, and talking over its head. Very uncomfortable for the Dormouse, thought Alice, only as it's asleep. I suppose it doesn't mind. The table was a large one, but the three were all crowded together at one corner of it. No room, no room, they cried out when they saw Alice come in. There's plenty of room, said Alice indignantly. And she sat down in a large armchair at one end of the table. She's just so undaunted. I love that. Have some wine, the March Hare said in an encouraging tone. Alice looked all around the table, but there was nothing on it, but tea. I don't see any wine, she remarked. There isn't any, said the march hare. Then it wasn't very civil of you to offer it, said Alice angrily. It wasn't very civil of you to sit down without being invited, said the march hare. I didn't know it was your table, said Alice. It's laid for a great many more than three. Your hair wants cutting, said the Hatter. He had been looking at Alice for some time with great curiosity, and this was his first speech. You should learn not to make personal remarks, Alice said with some severity. It's very rude. The Hatter opened his eyes very wide upon hearing this, but all he said was, Why is a raven like a writing desk? Come, we shall have some fun now, thought Alice. I'm glad they've begun asking riddles. I believe I can guess that, she said aloud. Do you mean that you think that you can find out the answer to it, said the march hare? Exactly so, said Alice. Then you should say what you mean, the march hare, went on. I do, Alice hastily replied, at least. At least I mean what I say. That's the same thing, you know. Not the same thing a bit, said the hatter. You might just as well say that I see what I eat is the same as I eat what I see. You might just as well say, added the march hare, that I like what I get is the same thing as I get what I like. You might just as well say out of the dormouse who seemed to be talking in a sleep that I breathe when I sleep is the same as I sleep when I breathe. It is the same thing with you, said the hatter. And here the conversation dropped and the party sat silent for a minute while Alice thought over all she could remember about ravens and writing discs, which wasn't much. So that's Lewis Carroll talking about the march here in company. Listen to the rhythm of the falling rain Telling me just what a fool I've been I wish that it would go and let me cry and slowdown. there's a website for the annual Leaping Hare convention. It's held every spring in Colchester, Essex, Britain. We're going to update it says this site with information about the forthcoming convention the two thousand sixteen convention is this Saturday, April 2nd, at the Highwoods Community Center adjacent to Tesco's in Colchester. If you would like to book a stall or purchase a ticket, then please email me, RobinHearn, R-O-B-I-N-H-E-R-N-E, at hotmail.com. Tickets are also available from Diane. There's the... um, Phone number I can give this to you, Poetry Slowdown. And there is a program. And you can go to info leaping at gmail dot com. They have a program with talks on the spirit of the hair. And there is um, a session on nature poetry and the Finnish Kalevala, and workshops on tree talismans. I would love to go to this. There are sessions on drumming, and the program looks fantastic. So there's a lot to say about the March here all go soft the rain and furls and supple gusts the leaves flash pale then limply steep themselves in green this is john updike whose 85th birthday we're commemorating today his poem about the early spring rain i'm professor barbara Mossberg, our poetry slowdown radio and this week i was having a vision exam and my eyes were dilated and as my doctor was trying to distract me with talk of poetry she told me that her son in kindergarten had to memorize poetry and that she and the other parents had to memorize the poems too do you love that i asked her as i lay there with my eyes closed and burning to recite the poem it was rained by robert Louis Stevenson the rain is falling all around it falls on field and tree it rains on the umbrellas here and on the ships at sea and I know that they will both carry these lines into their whole lives and when it rains those lines will come I was driving through the central coast hills of California the hills are green, the cherry trees in bloom. Of course, I thought of A.E. Hausman's loveliest of trees because my brother was assigned it when we were little. And so it became his favorite poem. We love what we know. And as my doctor's son having to memorize a poem caused his mom to memorize it, we all learned my brother's poem. And so now when I see the cherry in bloom, as it is in so many places. I not only think of this poem, see and experience with these words, but I think of my brother. They're all inextricably connected when I see those white blossoms. Loveliest of trees, the cherry now is hung with bloom along the bough and stands about the woodland ride wearing white for Eastertide now of my threescore years and ten twenty will not come again and take from seventy springs a score it only leaves me fifty more and since to look at things in bloom fifty springs are little room about the woodlands I will go to see the cherry hung with snow A.E. Houseman read with love my brother Steve. We're talking about Middle March. I think of Wordsworth's My Heart Leaps Up When I Behold a Rainbow in the Sky. And I want to talk about leaping, as in leaping hares, march hares who leap in the air straight up and look quite mad, as they say, and leaping foxes and whales and fleas and all leaping things, but most of all, leaping as something so intrinsic to spring, something that occurs in poems. First of all, one of my faves, you know, it's E.E. Cummings. I thank you, God, for most this amazing day, for the leaping, greenly spirits of trees and true blue dream of sky, and for everything which is natural, which is infinite, which is, yes, I, who have died, am alive again today. And this is the son's birthday. And this is the birthday of life and of love and wings and the gay great happening illimitably earth. I think about this poem all the time. It comes to me as I gaze about. And every kind of weather, not just sun shining or leaves on trees, it's the leaping greenly spirits of trees. A tree spirit, which must be green, but green comes out of the dark earth. It comes out of clear rain, blue and white and black sky. Fire of sun's yellow and orange and red, brown and white stem, and the green of it, the leaping of it. Perhaps how leaves seem to bounce and wave in wind for an instant, and leaping. one defies gravity. All that weighs us down, grounds us, and we are airborne, lifted, soaring in flight, and the firmly rooted tree in the ground, its spirit leaping. Thinking of my Susie, her horses I think about all this in the ways we leap greenly in our being, in our thinking crossing neural chasms from one way of knowing to the next, but one transcendent, transforming moment of not being bound free-floating, arced a rainbow there's a leap in rainbow even as this perfect circle is about completion beginning and ending in Earth's own curve and circular orbit. A rainbow must be how Earth leaps in its spirit, which requires sun and rain together, light and dark as Cummings sees life and death and life again always being alive again today. And what makes your heart leap, leaping both an act of saving one's life and rejoicing, leaping from the jaws of a lion, from a surging stream, leaping for joy like John Muir on a mountain top, or Gary Snyder crossing a stream or Linda Gregg at the pasture fence winning for sheer pleasure in life's green, just spring spring like leap, spring up all that energy. All that, yes, all that, striving against the no of being human, merely that force of green, what Gerard Manley Hopkins and Theodore Rettke call the green juiciness of the earth. Surely it is in us. One night in Indiana, listening to rain on a tin roof, imagining buffalo, the kind that fly when it rains, for whatever reason, I wrote this. It was rain on the roof in our little shack. Buffalo poem. The buffalo returned last night. Hooves pounded the tin roof. I could hear myself trampled, a valley trembling with thunder. My ears filled with sounds and my mind bill awoke me flooded with rain in the night. Is it because I am a woman I can be filled up like a bowl or a cup, even awake? As my dream receded, I was a lake and the rain poured into me. I was nothing but the sound of the stampede and it was night and rain. But in the morning, only birds. Outside on the plain, there is a straggly green Broken toothpicks left by the herd. Although I look for buffalo in vain, there are only plops and puddles, and this grass now, which would not grow for me, but is there for buffalo. The buffalo return, bring spring, and I, hollowed out in brown season like ripe scooped cantaloupe, renounce all doubt. I see no earthly reason why I cannot sprout, that being so filled with spring sounds, I too, again, will pound. So that's my Buffalo poem. We seek hope and solace in nature's news. In this season, as we look around, respond to rain and creatures on the grass and road, our heart is its own blade of grass. Crocus bulb of sort, ready to break through cracked mud. Our feelings about things launched by the sight of nature's news. Here is Mark Doty, Turtle Swan. And I chose this for you, poetry slowdown, for its call to what I think of in you listening to poetry in your day. Because the road to our house is a back road, meadowlands punctured by gravel, quarry, and lumberyard, there are unexpected travelers some nights on our way home from work. Whence on the lawn of the tool and dye company, a swan. The word doesn't convey the shock of the thing. White architecture rippling like a pond's rain-pocked skin, beak lifting to hiss at my approach, magisterial, Set down in elegant authority, he let us know exactly how close we might come. After a week of long rains that filled the marsh until it poured across the road to make in low woods a new heaven for toads, a snapping turtle lumbered from the center of the asphalt like an ambulatory helmet. His long tail dragged, blunt head jutting out of the lapidary prehistoric sleep of shell weed have lifted him from the road, but thought he might bend his long neck back to snap. I tried hurting him. He rushed, though we didn't think those blocky legs could hurry, and ambled back to the center of the road, a target for kids who delight in the crash of something slow with the look of primeval invulnerability. He turned the blunt. Spear point of his jaws puffing his undermouth like a bullfrog and snapped earshoe, vising a beak full of thank God leather. You had to shake him loose. And he ends. I don't know if the stain on the street was our turtle or some other. I don't know where these things we meet and know briefly as well as we can or they will let us go. I only know that I do not want you, you with your white and muscular wings that rise and ripple beneath or above me, your magnificent neck, eyes, the deep mottled autumnal colors of polished tortoise. The tortoise I do not want you ever to die. Mark Doty. I remember Mary Oliver in her poem, Summer Day. How we find her kneeling in the grass, gazing at a grasshopper and finding in the details of a life such wonder and miracle that she thinks immediately of our mortality. Doesn't everything die at last? And too soon, then she asks, tell me, what do you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And in this question, she gives us a gift, a vision of our own lives as wild as well as precious. And that takes us back to nature's news that one third of all wild beasts end up in the jaws of the lion What if we knew that three out of three creatures end up with the jaws of life itself, crunched in an endless appetite for each other as we become part of the nutrition of Earth, universe? I remember my thoughts on buying a supermarket salmon, which is said to be good for us, salmon I mean, especially wild salmon, and that's Too bad for Salmon, I was thinking, and then thought, Coho, it isn't just you. So I went to the parking lot and I wrote this. Coho, it isn't just you, it's me too. It's all our story. Once you are strength moving through water, silver flow, your entire length in sunshine gleaming, shining scales on your way, and now you're bagged, A treat for my afternoon. And while I think of your life ended so soon, ended this way, I realize that someday that's me too. Not eaten, perhaps, in just this way, but wouldn't that be nice if I were so nutritious, of such worth, if eating me would make some creature lustrous and glow, if I were good to its health? Though perhaps in whatever form I become as part of earth, I will feed the waving trees and worm who is feast to some bird. And when we think of what the river would need, it would be nice to think in such poem, this prayer is heard. Well, wouldn't it be wonderful to be nutritious and delicious if we have to leave this one wild and precious life as we know it? Walt Whitman in his lifelong book, Leaves of Grass, looks out at the grass just beginning to emerge in this season and thinks, a child said, what is the grass? Fetching it to me with full hands. How could I answer the child? I do not know what it is any more than he. I guess it must be the flag of my disposition out of hopeful green stuff woven, or I guess it is the handkerchief of the Lord, a scented gift and remembrance are decidedly dropped, bearing the owner's name some way in the corners that we may see and remark and say, whose? I love this idea of what is the grass by Walt Whitman. And Paul Muldoon has a poem on the hedgehog and it connects with what Whitman is saying about the grass that we can look at it and know that we're supposed to notice it and connect it to all the glory of creation. Paul Maldon's Hedgehog. The snail moves like a hovercraft held up by a rubber cushion of itself sharing its secret with the hedgehog. The hedgehog shares its secret with no one. We say, Hedgehog, come out of yourself and we will love you. We mean no harm. We want only to listen to what you have to say. We want your answers to our questions. The hedgehog gives nothing away, keeping itself to itself. We wonder what a hedgehog has to hide, why it's so distrusts. We forget the God under this crown of thorns. We forget that never again will a God trust in the world. But I would say, and this is me now, Dr. B, I feel each poem that is ever written is a redeeming act for which I am grateful as part of the human species. Each poem is something that says to the world on behalf of us all, to all that creates us, we honor this experience of consciousness, of wonder, of being here on earth with our eyes and ears open, awake, noticing, paying attention, thinking for ourselves in the radio Monterey way. And so you, you here, at our poetry slowdown with producer Zappa Johns and me, Professor Barbara Mossberg. Until next week, may the man with the marmalade hat be with you, head badgers and hedgehogs and moles. Winter is over, my loves. Come away from your hollows and holes as we went on in the fields to pray silent before a sound meadow and i will remember the song sung that e when over the march winds will be and here's a poem to send us off i wrote on lions and live Another part of the heath, Storm Still. And this title is taken from the stage directions in King Lear, his um, storm scene. Enter King Lear and Fool. That's the stage directions. Be forgiving like the rain which never gives up on us. Be still as you lie on the bench under the shaking leaves. While a lion watches you let your eye mirror the sky and your brain be full of heaven. You know the eyes that watch you watch for you for your love. Let your white wise head be loved by me not a lion but who loves you just as much as we march out with lions, O oh, poetry slow down, and reigns infinite forgiveness, redeeming earth. I look forward to being with you next week. You can go on to our podcast at barbaramossberg.com for all of our shows of all the months, including of March, and hairs, and madness, and green, and redemption, and new life, and hope, and all the things that poetry gives us, without which, William Carlos Williams says, we die miserably every day, this is the news we need, the news we heed, and I'm your grateful host, Professor Barbara Mossberg. Thank you for joining me in mid-March with producer Zappa Johns, our own Mr. Z. We're here for you every week. Dappled and drowsy and ready to sleep, let the morning time drop all its petals on me. Life I love you, all its groovy.